Well, uh, today we're going to jump into the book of Genesis. And uh, many of us have read Genesis before. You know, usually when you're determined to start uh, reading the Bible through a year or start getting into the Word, it's a logical place to start, right? It's the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So we're familiar with that. We get to Exodus and we're still going strong and we get to Leviticus and what happens? We start to slow down and we get to Numbers and what happens? We kind of jump ship entirely. Some of us do. Some of us prevail and keep on going. But uh, most of us are familiar therefore with the story of Joseph that's found in the book of Genesis and it's always good to rethink and rehash and restudy important stories in the Bible. Joseph's life is definitely one of those because well The story of Joseph is really one of the longest ones in the Old Testament. In fact, of the 50 chapters in Genesis, Joseph accounts for 14 of those. In fact, his story is 25% longer than the story of Abraham. So clearly, God is directing us, saying, learn from Joseph's life's experiences. So, pop quiz this morning. Who in Scripture was the object of his father's special love? Who was betrayed and sold for pieces of silver? Who in scripture was stripped of his robe and beaten for doing the will of his father? Who was delivered over to the Gentiles? Who was sent to find lost sheep or lost brothers? Who in scripture was thrown into a pit, a grave, only to rise again? Well, the answer is, as you know, Jesus and Joseph. Isn't it amazing that these events in the life of Joseph that we're going to look at today, some of them anyway, mirror so closely what Jesus experienced on earth? Listen, it's obvious. The Lord God Almighty is many wonderful and beautiful things. And one of those beautiful realities is that he's sovereign over everything. And through his sovereign power, through the pen of Moses, God details 1,700 years before Christ... He details Joseph's life in a way to point us to Christ. And just as Joseph will will, uh, deliver his people out of starvation and, and, and into abundance, Christ, therefore, will be our deliverer. The similarities between Joseph and Jesus are amazing. And additionally, there's so many application points to our life in the story of Joseph, so we're just going to jump right in and start dissecting those. And there's no way that we can cover every one of them in just four 30-minute sermons, but we can cover some. So we're going to start today in Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to look at a few things like the importance of proper family dynamics. And we're going to look at that sovereignty of God, how he's in control of everything a little bit in this story. And we're going to learn how God allows certain struggles in our life to occur, to refine us, to mold us, ultimately all for his goodwill and his good purposes. So let's start in Genesis 37, 1 through 3, and let's get an insight into how this family was functioning. In chapter 37, we read in Genesis, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him 
and could not speak a kind word to him. The term in 2023 that we would use to describe this family could be dysfunctional. And many players contribute to this dysfunctional family, including Joseph. Right Now remember, Joseph was the second youngest son of Jacob. The youngest was Benjamin. And we read in verse 2 that Joseph brought a bad report of the brothers to their father, Jacob. Now think back to your childhood for a moment. Brothers and sisters, you probably have some brothers and sisters, or you have a close family, a close friend group as a young kid. What would you be called if you went to mom and dad or an authority and told them that something that your brothers were doing that might be bad? What would you be called? A tattletale. And would that action have been appreciated by you? No, it probably made you mad. Now, I'm pretty confident that Joseph was very, very justified in reporting this to his father. Right? So I don't want to call him a tattletale in the negative sense of the word, but that's what he did. And that's how his brothers perceived it because it surely didn't sit well with them. And we're going to see that in a moment. There's, and here's something to make note of. The Hebrew word that we translated in our English Bible as bad when he gave a bad report is ra. So say ra with me. Ra. Ra. If you look that up, that actually means evil. Okay, and that was the word that God used through Moses to describe the people in Noah's day when their heart was always wicked and evil before the Lord, right? And he destroyed the earth with the flood. That's the word used for this bad or evil report. So we don't know what Joseph's brothers were up to, but we know they were up to no good. And not only did Joseph want no part of it at all, but he reported that evil activity to their father. And his brothers, we read, hated him. For being a snitch. They hated him for many reasons. One another one was because he had prophetic dreams that someday the family would bow down to him. Dysfunction in this family was also fueled by jealousy due to the actions of the father Jacob. Parenting 101 says what? That we should never show favoritism towards one child over the other. Yet what did Jacob do? He gives Joseph, Joseph this beautiful, multicolored coat. And every time the brothers look at Joseph and his coat, they're reminded of this special love that Jacob has for Joseph. Dysfunction is so apparent in this family. There's three stepmothers, ten stepbrothers, one brother, one stepsister, all living around the same homestead at the same time. That's a recipe for disaster. Now, I know some of you here can relate to a dysfunctional family. And the fact is that all of us have some degree of dysfunction in our family or in our family history. And in your family and in my family, the cure for dysfunction is Christ. Because in Christ, we're a new creation. In 1 Corinthians 5.17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. When you give your life to Christ, when you become a new creation, he changes the story of your life. Jesus will change your life's direction. At least he should. Right? He changes your life's purpose when we fix our eyes on Christ. He is the answer to our healing when the healing needs to occur. 
Well, Joseph experienced hardship after hardship and due to the dysfunction of this family, but he never, never, never took his eyes off the Lord and his struggles begin to intensify when his brothers take a trip to Shechem. So let's continue reading in verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. So we need to pause real quick because if we don't pause, we're going to miss some important background of, of what's happening in this story. The picture on the screen right now is a map of ancient Israel. And verse 11 ends with Jacob's family being in Hebron. Verse 12, we just read that his brothers took the flocks to Shechem. That's the family livelihood, the family's flocks, up to Shechem, and that's 50 miles north of Hebron. And ultimately, the story is going to end up a little bit farther north in Dothan. But for right now, Jacob is wondering, what in the world are the brothers doing in Shechem? Does anybody remember what happened in Shechem? And that's okay if you don't, because later on today, go back and read chapter 34 of Genesis. But here's what happened just a couple chapters prior to where we are in 37. It was in Shechem where Jacob's stepdaughter, stepsister, excuse me, Joseph's stepsister, Dinah, was violated. This made the brothers angry. So the brothers concocted a scheme, and they, they convinced all the male Shechemites that they would be circumcised, it would be okay. They could intermarry between the communities, and everything would be okay if they were circumcised. Two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, sneak in while the men are still down and out from being circumcised, right? They sneak in, kill every male. The rest of the brothers, the other eight, come in, take all the valuables of Shechem, take livestock, even take some of the women back to their father, Jacob. That's what happened in Shechem. And at the end of the account in 34, we see that Jacob was very angry with Simeon and Levi for doing that. Very angry. So he moves his family, probably scared a little bit, moves his family south to where we, what we read in the valley of Hebron, 50 miles south. He wanted to get his family as far away from Shechem as possible. The point is this. Shechem's not a good place. And with everything that just happened that I just told you about, those events are still fresh. And it would be very dangerous and stupid for those brothers to take the family livelihood up to Shechem, to the old stomping ground, to see what's going on. And for us, listen, there's just some places in our life that we just need to avoid. I just need to avoid them because they're only going to bring you suffering. And for Joseph's brothers, Shechem is one of those places. They have no business being there. But it seems to me they want to get as far away from Joseph as possible. They didn't like that evil report. They want to do what their flesh wants to do without Joseph telling father about it. So they go to Shechem, where they think Joseph will never find them. And that's where we read in 13 and 14 that Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks. And bring word back to me. So he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. So it's obvious. Jacob is wondering, what in the world are they doing? He's concerned for the welfare of the son. So he asks Joseph, and Joseph goes. And remember, they're like 20s and 30s. How old is Joseph? 17. And Jacob says to Joseph, I'm counting on you to be the good shepherd of the family, right? I'm counting on you to make sure things are done right. I'm giving you the special robe. Colorful, multicolored robe. So Joseph agrees and does the will 
of his father, Jacob. Now, try to imagine as, as Joseph is going up to his brothers, how is he feeling? One hand, good. Father's given me leadership. Father loves me. I have the robe, etc. Other hand, oh, a little bit hesitant. He has to know he's going into a pretty dicey situation. He has to know the brothers don't like him. It's got to be pretty evident in Joseph's mind. I mean, have you ever been around people that don't like you? Yes, most likely we all have. How do you know they don't like you? Well, it becomes pretty clear. Often they talk, they talk about you, right? but not to you. They talk to you about you. They talk behind your back sometimes. And you can sense it. And when you do talk to them, you can sense it in their eye contact. You can sense it in their mannerisms. You can sense it in the attention they give you. Joseph knew he was walking into a tough situation. But he was asked to travel 50 miles alone, possibly on foot, to a band of brothers who he knew didn't like him. Was this an easy request from his father? Obviously not. No. But Joseph does his father's will travels from, from Hebron to Shechem, and we see in verse 15 that it shows how God is sovereign over this whole situation. A man found him, that's Joseph, wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Well, can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Apparently, the brothers didn't find what they were looking for in Shechem. So they go to Dothan. And instead of finding his brothers, someone else finds Joseph. Who was this man who just happened upon Joseph in a random field? We don't know. But what I think we see here, guys, is that God, through the pen of Moses, is nudging us to see his invisible hand, his providence, his sovereignty in this encounter. God is leading Joseph directly to his brothers. And this is really a pivotal time, as you know, in the history of Israel, right? Um, the brothers, as we just talked about in 34, they're already mixing with the Canaanites. They're straying from the straight and narrow path. And, 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 and God, God's using this situation to, to do what? To build a nation in, in Egypt. This is going to be one of the first foundation points to where Joseph goes to Egypt, and then Israel is going to be built in Egypt for 400 years in slavery until Moses does what? Moses delivers the people out of slavery. Moses delivers them out of bondage into the promised land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is pivotal in the history of God's chosen people. So he's sovereign. He's moving. And as we move through Joseph's life, it's filled with application points like the dysfunctional family or standing your moral ground like we're going to see next week with Mrs. Potiphar. But ultimately, the story of Joseph is about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and how he moves in our life situations to bring glory and honor to him, not us. And that's super important because when things go well, it's easy to acknowledge the sovereign hand of God. It's a lot harder to trust that God's in control when life does not go the way we expect it to. And that's what's about to happen to Joseph as we see God allow some suffering in his life when he encounters his brothers. Let's read on. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. 
Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. So immediately they see the multicolored coat and they begin to scheme to kill him. And are they serious? I think so. They're just not blowing off steam here. Remember, these guys, chapter 34, killed every male in a village. They have no problem taking a human life. They were serious. They wanted to kill Joseph, throw his corpse into a cistern, a dry cistern, and leave him there. That was their intent. And here, here it's where the original audience who was, now remember this, was listening to the story. They weren't reading it. The original audience is listening to the story. And they hear a little, a little bit of irony here, so I want to point that out to you. It has to do with the word that we all said together a minute ago when they gave a bad or evil report. When, when we read that they, their story was a ferocious animal would devour Joseph, do you know what the word in Hebrew that we translated ferocious is? Ra. It's raw. It literally means an evil animal, evil beast, evil creature devoured Joseph. That was their story. So in this story, we have evil brothers, evil animals. And the evil animals are going to devour Joseph. One more little word to, to hang on to for the future is the word for devoured. It's a call. Just remember that. A-K-L-A-L. A call. That means devoured. They'll play out in just a minute, which is pretty cool. But first, let's see how the brothers reacted when they saw Joseph. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their meal. Remember that, too. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let's not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And once again, together, let's try to imagine what it must have felt like to be Joseph. Okay, Joseph didn't ask for this position of authority or leadership over his brothers. He earned it with his character, and he didn't ask for prophetic dreams from God. Those were a gift of grace. And in this account, he's just being obedient to his father's will when he encounters brothers and they strip him of his coat of many colors. And while the Bible really doesn't say how they stripped him of his coat, I can't imagine it being gently. Can you? I mean, do they gently take off his robe and hug and kiss and gently lower him into the pit? You know, I think there was a struggle. There must have been some elbows thrown. There must have been maybe some punches thrown. Joseph might have been beaten, stripped of that robe, tossed into a dry well, a cistern, left there to die. In the ancient Near East, cisterns are, are all over. Rick will see them in a couple weeks here. They're used to collect water when it rains heavy. Then in the dry seasons, they have some water, but eventually it runs out, and it's dry. And this is what Joseph was most likely thrown into. When it's dry, there's no way out. Joseph knew he was in a bad spot. He knew his life was in jeopardy. And to top it all off, he's thinking, man, 
my brothers who betrayed me. And again, like Jesus, these weren't Canaanites that betrayed Joseph and threw him into the pit. Joseph came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. There aren't many experiences in life that are more painful than betrayal. So Joseph has to be sitting there at the bottom of that cistern wondering, God, you know, where are you in all this? Right? I'm hurting. Where, what is going on? God, why are you letting this happen to me? The intensity of his suffering, the intensity of these cries of despair made an impression on those brothers. And here's how we know why. Because years later, when they're on the receiving end of some very bad news, they're the ones saying, God, why are you letting this happen to us? And we read in chapter 42 of Genesis, verse 21, that then they said to one another, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. In that moment when they tossed Joseph into that dry cistern, they knew he was suffering the distress of his soul, and they knew they were the cause of it. So let me ask you this. Do you remember after his brothers did this, we read something in verse 25a. Do you remember what that was? Toss him to put in the pit, then they sat down to eat a meal. The, the ten of them, they sit down to eat dinner. Can you imagine a more callous response than that? I mean, who said grace over that meal, right? That's, that's horrible. Joseph is begging for his life, and they sit down to eat. And Moses here uses that same Hebrew word I asked you to remember a minute ago to describe how they're eating a call. It was a ferocious beast devoured a call. They're sitting down to eat dinner. A call. So through the pen of Moses, can you appreciate who the ferocious animals are in this story? Can you relate to the despair Joseph feels? He's been betrayed, beaten at the bottom of the pit, and he realizes he's going to die at the hands of his brothers who are acting like evil beasts devouring their dinner. Sometimes we too feel that we're about to be devoured or overcome by the situations around us in our dysfunctional or maybe not families. Especially when the pressure is coming from those who are supposed to love us and care for us. It leaves us paralyzed in many ways. But remember that God is in control and God is always good. And it's at this dinner that God's control, his sovereignty over the situation, his providence is evident again as they Raise their eyes and look. There's a caravan heading to Egypt. God's perfect timing, right? His providence in a time of trouble. Plan A was to kill Joseph. Plan B, throw him in the cistern, just let him starve to death. So we can kind of say, we don't know what's going on with him. And plan C was to, wins the day, and it is to sell Joseph into slavery. So Joseph does nothing wrong here. He does everything that's right. But his reward for doing what's right is he's going to suffer as a slave in Egypt for a season. And only for a season because, remember, God is in control. So, so briefly, let me describe what that would be like. Just briefly, slavery. Joseph most likely was pierced in his ear. I know piercings are the, the thing of today. But back then it was four slaves, usually in the nose, in the ear. Joseph would be chained up to the next slave in line. 
You know, and that's what? So they don't escape. And also, if they're ever released in society, you know who former slaves are. And then Joseph would be required to walk in this slave line with chains ear to ear 500 miles from Dothan to Egypt. That's it. After church, let's go for a walk. Let's walk from Springfield to Atlanta, Georgia, okay? Atlanta, Georgia, in a straight line would be 500 miles. Joseph had to walk 500 miles day after day, step after step, into slavery, into Egypt. That's what he would... And man, we threw a few statements up before, but wouldn't he have to think, God, again, where are you? Why... What's going on? You gave me a dream that the sun, the moon, and the stars would bow down to me. What is happening? But God hasn't lost control of the situation. There's always purpose behind the hand of God. Remember, the, God's the one who sent the mystery man. God hasn't forsaken Joseph. He's going to transform this awful situation of Joseph's life into something much better. But for now, Joseph's gonna, just going to have to wait. His payday is a long way away. And so maybe you're struggling too. So I want to encourage you. You press on too, right? Don't grow weary doing well just because life's not going the way you expect it to. Don't give up. Continue doing the will of your heavenly father and your reward will be coming too. The brothers, however, like Judas, who betrayed Jesus, they get their reward immediately. They get their silver for selling Joseph. And as the chapter concludes, they devise a story to tell Jacob. They take Joseph's robe, and they slaughter a goat, and they dip the robe in the blood of the goat, and they bring it to Jacob, and they say, identify this, thus solidifying the lie that Joseph is dead. And here it is that we just have to appreciate a little bit more of Moses' play on words or Moses's, the Lord's irony here, because Jacob is no stranger to deception, is he? Once upon a time, as a young man, Jacob took his brother's robe and put it on. And Jacob took goat skins and tied them to his hands and the back of his neck. And Jacob pretended to be Esau in order to deceive Isaac. And now in Dr. Seuss-like fashion, it wasn't the cat in the hat, but the goat in the coat. (laughs) And the tables turned. The tables turn. Jacob is now haunted by the goat and the coat. Jacob gets deceived when his ch- children take Joseph's coat, dip it in goat's blood, fake Joseph's death, and it caused Jacob unspeakable heartache. So when we read in verse 33, towards the end of the chapter, that, Joseph, that excuse me, Jacob exclaimed, he says, It is my son's robe. A ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Jacob is both right and wrong in that statement. Evil animals have devoured Joseph. The problem is the evil creatures that devoured Joseph were the very ones he sent Joseph to in the first place. And while Jacob mourns for his son, Joseph begins this new life in Egypt as a slave, and that's where we're going to leave this story for the time being betrayed And in a foreign land, and over the next few weeks, what we're going to see is that God redeems the situation in ways that Joseph, his father, and his brothers could never have imagined. And we're also going to see how God rewards Joseph exceedingly, abundantly, above all Joseph could ever have asked or imagined.
In fact, a little bit of homework tonight or today for you guys. Before next week, I would just ask you all read the next two chapters in Genesis, 38 and 39. Now, I won't be developing a sermon or a message on chapter 38. You read it. We can talk one-on-one. Okay, It's a better approach, I think, in a Bible study or one-on-one situation. be happy to talk to you about that. So we're going to jump into 39 next week. But read those next two chapters. But in conclusion for today, the book of Genesis that we're jumping into here with Joseph and others lays out important themes we find all the way through Scripture. All the way through Scripture. Like the suffering all the way through Scripture, all the way to James, all the way to Revelation, right? We see suffering in our lives and God's purpose for it. Another truth found in Genesis is the truth about sin, right? How it entered into the human race through Adam. How it's going to be ultimately dealt with through the last Adam, the second Adam, as Paul calls him, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, in the story of Joseph, we clearly see the consequences of sin, And while we're going to uncover application points in our life, remember, the overall theme of this story, 14 chapters, the overall theme is redemption. Because, spoiler alert, at the end of this story, Joseph, who, like Jesus, was the object of his father's love, who was stripped of his robe and beaten, who was betrayed by those he loved for a few pieces of silver, also who also spent time in a pit, the grave, only to be lifted up. Joseph forgives his brothers for doing that awful act we've just been talking about. Joseph is a foreshadow of Christ who is yet to come, who offers forgiveness to us, those who've sinned against him. Too many times we act like Joseph's brothers in some way or another, maybe, maybe not, but I Sin has plagued our life as well. And if we're honest, it continues to plague our life. So Joseph's story isn't over yet. And as we read about him, I want you to just see the power of God in this situation and in his life. And our story isn't finished yet either. And and I want you to experience the power of God in your life as well, leading to the forgiveness of your sins, the redemption of your soul. If you're looking for that, if you need that today, there's no better chance than right now to give your life to Christ. The whole Bible is a story of redemption. Joseph, a story of redemption. God wants to redeem us. He loves us so much. We don't have to wait years. Joseph's going to have to wait a long time. We don't have to wait years for that to happen. It can happen today. He's ready to do that by applying the blood of his son to your life, washing you white as snow, by simply accepting the gift he offers, right? Submitting to Christ Jesus as your Lord and living like that, living like he's the Lord of your life. He'll wash you white as snow. He's our gift. Thank the Lord for that. Let's stand and sing this morning. Let's stand stand thing that Jesus paid it all. It's, it's song number 305 in our hymnals. We're going to sing verses 1, 2, and 4. And praise his holy name. Jesus paid it all.